Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 20 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, June the 18th. First, I'll be talking to Neil Littlewood, the CEO of national shipping container company Royal Wolf, which has created a bespoke shipping container solution for Griffith University product investigating the production and use of maggots for medicinal purposes. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gurian. But now, let's talk to Neil Littlewood. Well, Neil, I've heard of Royal Wolf's uh, shipping container business in connection with fine food. I've heard you in connection with uh, the defence industry. But maggots? (laughs) Tell us about it. Yes, Leon, a, a, uh, an interesting um, uh, opportunity came our way. So we've done some work previously with Griffith University developing some uh, modified containers for their, uh, for their requirements. Um, so Frank Stadler, who's from Griffith University, he sought a grant to 
basically develop a, uh, a mobile laboratory. Um, in there, it was to uh, a laboratory for the control of maggots, and the maggots are there to, uh, to control infections. So the whole intention is to have a mobile deployable um, and also basically uh, by an organization called Creating Hope and Conflict, which is a global organization about trying to get uh, medical, better medical facilities at areas where they need it at, for emergencies or from after conflict. So these are maggots for medicinal purposes, aren't they? Yes, it is. Uh, I understand maggots have a short uh, lifespan. So the idea is to have the laboratories close to the areas where medical need is required and be able to cultivate and grow maggots in the area to help basically as part of the controlling infections post-conflict or post-natural disasters. So being shipping containers, these can go anywhere where, where, the, where there's a need for them. That, uh, the shipping container is deployable. It can be moved by air, sea, road. So what, the, what they're looking for is the ability to deploy the container uh, very close to the, uh, to the conflict zone so they'll be able to have the medicine available for the uh, uh, infectious disease or control infections close by to the zone. Right, okay, okay. So, so what went into developing a laboratory in a shipping container? Well, the, the way, uh, let's consider the shipping container is just the vessel. It's just a strong vessel. It's, it's got a lot of space inside that. So we work with our customers from their, uh, their intent uh, for almost the scope of works to design something that, that is unique or bespoke for their requirements. So in this case, it was uh, Griffith University coming to us and saying, this is what we need. Um, and the part of the complexities here was having a, uh, a constant temperature in one area of the container and another one as a, as a working environment. So a breeding area and, and then also a working environment. So separating the two different areas, have to keep, keep it away from ants, so some treatment on the bottom. Um, so it was a lot about airflow, a lot about uh, insulation, and a lot about making sure that the, uh, uh, it's built so it can be deployed quickly. What, what sort of expertise goes into something like that? I wouldn't imagine uh, uh, you would have done anything like this before. How did you do this? Um, well, we have a team of engineers and draftsmen that work with uh, the, the stakeholders, being in this case, Griffith University, and they have a very clear ideas of what they, uh, what they require. And we just interpret their concepts into design. We have built medical centres before. Um, we have medical centres deployed in uh, different modules. Um, there are medical centres, for example, down at, uh, in the Snowy Mountains Hydro Scheme, Hydro 2 scheme that we have built for, for them. So we've been building uh, bespoke solutions for our customers for the past 20 odd years. Right, okay. So medical centres and, uh, and laboratories are nothing new to you? Oh, uh, look, they are bespoke, uh, Leon. They, they're not, that's not every day. But uh, uh, last year, we built two medical centres, as an example. That's, that's quite fascinating. Now, so, so what are the big growth areas for the shipping container business now? Um, well, shipping containers, uh, there's a lot of people who say it's revolutionised world trade. So we have been uh, operating now for 25 years, and... Uh, realistically, it's about people realising that they are strong steel vessels that you can store or do a lot of things in. So uh, we have a very extensive business in um, renting containers, various types of containers, the, the, the very standard containers to uh, fit out for um, uh, 
uh, kiosk canteens, food, as you talked about before, for building construction sites. So, uh, and and the strength of the container is part of part of the uh, part of the secret here. It's it's easily deployable because it's not fragile like a like a portable building. It can it can sustain its own weight. So if you you think about uh, on ships or in uh, uh, in depots, you might see containers six or seven high. So they're stacked six or seven high. So they have they have this integral strength in their long life. So when people realize that, it can go for lots of functions. So typically our major customer base will be in logistics, transport, um, uh, government, retail, uh, manufacturing, events. So we have a very broad uh, customer base and they all have uh, uh, alternative uses for their containers. And uh, I would imagine the defence industry would be quite major as well. Yes, well, the defence industry, same kind of thing. They're, they're looking at something that's deployable and something that is strong and, and secure. So they can easily lift it and move it. Uh, so we do do some work for defence and there's some exciting projects for defence, but some of that we, uh, we really can't talk about though too much now. I understand. I understand that completely. Would you have been affected much by COVID? Not so much. We we actually uh, provided some uh, assistance, and as did some of the other rental companies, for uh, for uh, testing centres, remote testing centres, drive-through testing centres. Um, uh, our op, our depots were required to stay open for some essential services. So we we basically have got through COVID okay. We didn't apply didn't apply for JobKeeper, didn't need to apply for JobKeeper. Um, kept all of our staff employed. Um, but we just went on split shifts and, and had people working remotely and in depots. Well, I, w- I would uh, hazard a guess that uh, from what you're describing, it would sound like COVID actually opened up new opportunities for Royal Wood. Yeah, it did open new opportunities, but it, uh, Leon, as you can probably well imagine, it closed lots of other uh, typical opportunities. So um, everybody during the last 12 months has had to adjust. We've had to do exactly the same. And, you know, that's, that's part of the, of the challenge of running a business in, in interesting times. We've we've come through come through well. Uh, the playbook hasn't been perfect, I can assure you, and we've learnt a lot. I bet, I bet. So, what are the future opportunities for Royal Wolf now? Um, well, look, we we are already Australia and New Zealand's largest shipping container provider, and we've got a really exciting opportunity, which was announced last week, that uh, we're currently owned by a listed Nasdaq listed company, but the world number one um, rental company called United Rentals. Uh, have made an agreement subject to uh, due diligence and subject to approval by statutory authorities to acquire us over the next couple of months, which means that uh, uh, Royal Wolf will come under the umbrella of a the world number one rental company, uh, which opens up the Australian and New Zealand markets for uh, United Rentals. So this is an exciting opportunity for us to, uh, to, to leverage that and take, take the business forward. Um, we think we, although... We have significant market share. There's so many areas we still haven't tapped into because of the versatility of the container. Right. Okay. Okay. So this would open up global markets and new areas. Completely. Uh, yes. Well, we, well, uh, United Rentals are a, uh, and this deal has not been. It won't be settled for a couple of months, but uh, it's in public domain now. Um, but it will certainly open opportunities in Australia, and New Zealand. Could open opportunities uh, across the Asia Pacific region. Um, as the world number one, they've got uh, the United States or, or North America covered very well. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's quite fascinating. And, and so what new areas could you expand into, potentially? Well, it'll depend on the new owners, on their, on their appetite, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're yet to, yet to learn that. So I can't really speak 
them, but there are obviously there are geographic areas that we don't service. We're only in Australia, New Zealand, in the Asia Pacific area that that could be possibilities. Could expand into the Asia Pacific. Yes, well, potentially yes. Um, there's a lot of lot of uh, water to run under the bridge before that uh, those decisions are kind of made. Um, but it, it's a, an exciting time for the company to be to be even considered by the world number one uh, player to uh, to be their entry into the Australian New Zealand markets. Well, that's that's quite exciting for you all, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's that's huge. And that's attracted around that is our rental business, but the the job around the the job for specific bespoke job for uh, um, the maggot therapy is just one of those really interesting um, and newsworthy kind of areas of, of business. Again, uh, just different uses of containers, and uh, people should consider that it is a, a a suitable vessel for a number of alternative solutions. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, Neil, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Leon. Thank you for the time. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grian. Nicholas, in a recent blog post, you suggested there's a basic asymmetry in the way that policy responds to major and disruptive new technology and, uh, and also about new platforms. Uh, can you take us through that argument? Sure. So what tends to happen as a new technology arrives is that people worry about the downside, and that's fine, but there's also an upside. And so we need to try and deal with what downsides there might be, but not by just getting rid of the upside. Now, with with something that's new, often we don't know exactly what the upside is. And if we do, the community doesn't know what the upside is. So the political pressure is all to stop things and not to optimise them, not to make them, uh, not to grab hold of the benefits of that new technology. So... Uh, this an example of this when I was chairing a thing called the Government 2.0 Task Force. We were looking at the significance of social media for government. Uh, the task force was arguing that, that public servants should be able to blog, uh, not to be controversial, but to do the sorts of things that we've seen happen uh, during the pandemic to get information out. And for And for instance, there's a lot of researchers in government in the Productivity Commission in the various economic agencies in the Bureau of Meteorology, and it would be entirely appropriate for researchers in those organisations to talk about their research. That sort of thing is, in fact, done by the Bank of England in the United Kingdom. We were arguing for uh, governments to try and encourage that to happen. Uh, but of course, what they were much more worried about was the way in which it might, you know, it might make their life slightly more complicated. Occasionally, somebody might create some controversy or do the wrong thing. And so essentially what happened was all that opportunity went by the wayside. Are there any disadvantages with public servants blogging? Well, the, the, the disadvantages for managers are that uh, somebody might, uh, misrepresent them or that they might say something that was a bit controversial. Those things happen. They still happen when senior public servants give speeches and so on. So there are things to manage, but there, were, there are lots of advantages uh, to do with, I mean, I get a lot out of blogging because just to give you one example, uh, if you have quite a few followers on your blog and you you write something and you've, you uh, you say, look at this and somebody will put a, a comment in your blog saying, yes, they do that. 
in Saskatchewan, Canada, or something like that, which is, can be tremendously useful if you are thinking about a policy or, or something like that. It is, it's simply good, new information that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Well, this is actually quite encouraging because it might encourage governments to actually bring new digital goods out. Well, yes, well, it might. It's just that they don't. <laughs> um, but that's right, that, uh, that, that people are preoccupied with uh, making sure that bad things don't happen rather than trying to do that alongside making sure that as many good things happen as possible. Uh, are there any arguments for uh, sort of platforms to emerge? Do you have an argument for a genomic, genomic platform which we could get Medicare to pay for the services for 23andMe? So while I was, while, well, actually, it was a little after the Government 2.0 Task Force, I pointed out that, so, so one of the things that is quite remarkable is that if you think of Wikipedia, well, people, it's not very controversial that Wikipedia is a public good, but so also, according to the economic definition of a public good, are Google and Facebook, which is to say they're funded by advertising, they're made, they make a lot of money for their owners, but they're freely available public services to any of us who want to use it. And so that's a remarkable thing because Google could, have, could charge for their service and so, so could Facebook. Neither of them do so because they figured out that they could make more money by giving it away and turning it into a public good of sorts than they could charging for it. And so the question becomes... What are the, the, there must be other kinds of digital goods that would be better off for us all to be given away than charged for. But if they cost too much to supply, it won't happen. And a classic example of that is uh, 23andMe, in which you pay them $99, I think it is now 99 American dollars, and you get a genomic analysis, an analysis of your genome. They can't provide that for nothing, so they charge for it, so there aren't that many done. And the proposal was that Medicare, it would be very valuable for Medicare to have people's genome. They could use it to help target uh, public health measures like uh, screening for prostate cancer and uh, other kinds of cancers. Uh, and therefore, there would be a real interest in doing that. So that would be a way in which governments could... Uh, use their own resources to create new public goods. Uh, but we don't really think too much about that. We think mainly about how to stop bad things happening. And as a result, lots of good things don't happen. Well, it's interesting um, if you apply this to AI and fintech. Yeah. So what's happening now in fintech and in AI, I mean, one of the things that kind of creeps people out is that your financial institutions might crawl all over your social media uh, footprint to try to look at that data. And it turns out they can often, uh, it, it's often of some relevance for credit scoring. Now that might creep you, you out, it might creep me out, and maybe we should regulate uh, that. But what struck me when I read about this was that this very phenomenon is leading in the poorer countries to poor people becoming 
getting better access to credit and better access to banks. So that's a tremendously important thing. And just speaking personally, it's, well, just in terms of the amount of good it can do compared with the amount of harm it might do me, I'd be saying that's more important than me feeling creeped out. But ideally, I mean, that's not going to, no one's going to be happy with that. So the message isn't, well, just sort of throw away protection for us. It is to make sure that what protection we give ourselves does or minimizes the extent to which it gets in the way of something really important, which is people with very little money finding ways to look after themselves better. Uh, now, in um, many of your listeners may be familiar with microcredit, where people in very poor situations are given tiny loans and it enables them to turn their life around. Well, this is another way in which that can happen. And it's, it's pretty important that we don't get in the way of that. Uh, but uh, you could actually have uh, so users actually joining together to actually monitor it as well, couldn't you? Well, there are lots of, yeah, there are lots of ways. Uh, this is something that I've argued that we, that, that rather than have governments regulate it, we could have user groups involved. So you could, uh, I mean, one of the problems with governments regulating things in this, in an area like this is that the people who claim to represent com- consumers are consumer activists. Now, there's nothing wrong with a consumer activist. It's just that they don't represent uh, that they represent a particular kind of thing and they're very keen to get on the airwaves. That's how you make it as a consumer activist. So I've argued that there are lots of areas where rather than have government sort of handing out regulation and consumer advocates being the main political driver, that you could, for instance, randomly select a group of users, you could pay them, the, the, the companies could pay them a certain amount to spend half a day a month looking at the issues and agreeing on any things that they think are important. Uh, that seems to me to be a, a kind of fairer and smarter way of deciding what consumers really care about and trying to make sure that, they, that their concerns are met. An interesting form of governance. Yes, indeed. I think we should have more of it, indeed. Well, Nicholas Grimm, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, real estate prices around the world are flashing the kind of bubble warnings that haven't been seen since the run of up to the 2008 financial crisis, according to Bloomberg Economics. New Zealand, Canada and Sweden rank as the world's frothiest housing markets based on the key indicators used in the Bloomberg Economics dashboard. The UK and the US are also near the top of the risk rankings. A cocktail of ingredients is sending house prices to unprecedented levels worldwide, economist Niraj Shah wrote in the report. Record low interest rates, unparalleled fiscal stimulus, lockdown savings ready to be used as deposits, limited housing stock and expectations of a robust recovery in the global economy are all contributing. Stay-at-home workers in need of more space and tax incentives offered by some governments to home buyers are also stoking demand. For many countries in the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the price ratios are higher than they were ahead of the 2008 financial crisis, according to Bloomberg Economics Analysis. And the Group of Seven Richest Democracies has sought to counter China's growing influence by offering developing nations an infrastructure plan that could rival President Xi Jinping's multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road Initiative. US President Joe Biden and other G7 leaders hope their plan, known as Build Back Better World Initiative, will provide a transparent infrastructure partnership. 
The G7 has been searching for a coherent response to the growing assertiveness of Mr Xi after China's surging economic and military rise over the past 40 years. US President Joe Biden and other G7 leaders hope their plan will provide a transparent infrastructure partnership to help narrow the US $40 trillion, that's $51.9 trillion Aussie, needed by developing nations by 2035, the White House said. And Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson have signed an in-principle agreement toward a free trade deal. It is Britain's first bilateral free trade deal since Brexit. Mr Morrison said Britain joining the European Common Market in 1973 had a devastating blow on Australian producers and Brexit was an opportunity for us to pick up where we left off all those years ago. Under the agreement, certain quantities of Australian beef and lamb can be imported into Britain tariff-free each year. Anything above that quota gets a tariff, but the quota gets larger every year. After 10 years, the quota will be scrapped. But for a further five-year period, if import volumes into Britain pass a certain threshold, then tariffs are reapplied on the rest of that year's inflow. The deal extends the tenure of an Australian's UK visa from two years to three, and the maximum age to 35. However, Britain's youth mobility program for Australians is typically undersubscribed. And Australia recorded the fourth fastest house price growth out of the world's advanced economies over the past 20 years, according to a new report by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Local households are the second most indebted in the world, and it takes six years longer to afford a home in Australia. 16.4 years of disposable income for a 100 square metre dwelling versus 10.4 years for the OECD average. The cross-country analysis exposes how expensive Australian homes have become in the past two decades, and that restrictive state and local government regulations are exacerbating the price pressures. Paris-based OECD Director of Policy Studies in the Economics Department, Louise de Mello, said low interest rates had contributed to rising house prices, but restrictive regulations were also a leading reason why the supply of new housing had failed to keep pace with demand from high population growth and strong immigration levels before the pandemic, he said. And Australia's runaway house prices are making the national economy less stable and lowering productivity, according to research which warns home ownership is now out of reach for anyone under the age of 835, as governments repeat failed policy fixes. Special research led by University of New South Wales find the property market is now a triple threat to the nation's economic future, with the ongoing surge in prices creating economic instability, diverting money away from more productive pursuits and affecting the lending policies of the nation's major banks. House prices globally have accelerated since the middle of last year, as government stimulus and record low interest rates have been funnelled into property markets. Melbourne's median house price has reached $908,000, while in Sydney it is $1.2 million. The Reserve Bank has said it is focused on keeping interest rates low to drive down unemployment. Governments have pumped money into various policies aimed at first home buyers, including New South Wales, which plans to offer a $25,000 grant replacing existing stamp duty concessions. The University of New South Wales research, based in part on a survey of the nation's leading economists and housing policy experts, suggests such an approach would do nothing to make homes more affordable. It found that since the mid-1990s, house prices had outstripped income growth, contributing to a 4% drop in national home ownership, heavily concentrated on young people. Home ownership levels among under 35 has halved since 1995. An overseas residential property investment shrunk to the lowest level in seven years through the pandemic, causing the supply pipeline of apartments to dwindle over the coming years. Developers spent $4 billion on residential sites across the country in 2020, according to international real estate firm Knight Frank Research's latest Australian Residential Development Review. The change in spending represents a 19.6% fall from the $5.03 billion spend recorded in 2019 and a significant drop from the 2014 peak of $11.3 billion. The decline was severely impacted by low levels of offshore investment, which fell to less than 
$0.5 billion. And bidding wars, cheap funding and growth aspirations as Australia's COVID-19 risks recede are driving frenzied takeover activity amid expectations 2021 will be a record year. The activity is also being helped by the nation's sharp bounce from back from recession, private equity's desire to deploy billions of dollars and larger domestic superannuation funds looking to get directly involved in mergers and acquisitions. Announced domestic inbound and outbound Australian M&A totaled US $93.7 billion at $121.6 billion as of June 11, a record calendar year to date tally, according to Refinitiv data. That is up from a pandemic depressed total of US $20.5 billion in announced deals this time last year. If momentum is maintained, 2021 may beat the prior annual announced M&A high of US $196.6 billion from 2007. The Bonanza M&A activity has touched many sectors this year, and bankers and lawyers are confident 2021 will mark a new record. And more women are working for listed and unlisted fund managers than ever before. But the historically male-dominated industry still has much work to do to improve gender diversity, the later Hester research reveals. Survey responses from six of the industry super funds investment partners found the proportion of women in investment management roles at an aggregate level had improved from 17% in 2018 to 22% in 2020. Improvement was predominantly from an increase in women working in more junior roles, with unlisted fund managers the main contributor to better gender balance across the fund's investment partners. Women filled 24% of investment team roles at unlisted managers surveyed, up from 17% in 2018. Listed managers' diversity shifted slightly, increasing from 16% to 17% in 2020. And Fortescue Metals Group chairman Andrew Forrest has secured the inside running on developing the world's largest hydropower project, which alone carries a US $80 billion, that's $103.8 billion price tag, an associated port, green hydrogen and green ammonia capability in the troubled Democratic Republic of Congo. Dr Forrest said Fortescue's green energy and green hydrogen projects in Africa were not confined to the DRC and included projects in Kenya and Ethiopia, with investors and financiers already indicating a willingness to commit more than US $100 billion. He put Fortescue's weight behind the Grand Inga Dam project on the Congo as part of his ambition to diversify the iron ore miner into a global force in green energy and green hydrogen. And punting upstart Bluebet said it has secured its first American wagering license, opening the door to the lucrative US sports betting land grab as it heads towards an ASX listing next month. The outfit, founded by veteran bookmaker Michael Sullivan in 2015, which opened a public offering on Thursday, is set to land on the ASX board on July the 2nd, with a market value of around $220 million. And Macquarie has seen off a pair of activist billionaires in its quest to grab a stake in Italy's biggest toll road network on Saturday, announcing that its consortium had clinched a deal to buy most of Autostrada per Italia, that's ASPI, from Benetton Control Atlantia. The 9.3 billion euro, that's 14.6 billion Aussie deal, had been on the card since last year, but was almost derailed in April when Spanish billionaire and Real Madrid soccer club owner Florentino Perez swooped in with a dramatic last-minute bid. But Macquarie has prevailed. Its consortium, which also includes US investment group Blackstone and Italian state investment firm Casa Depositi e Prestiti, has agreed terms with Atlantia for its 88% stake. And Marley Spoon is moving to seize a greater share of the Australian grocery market with a food delivery service ramping up manufacturing and distribution in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth, underscoring its ambitions to become 1 billion euro, that's 1.57 billion Aussie, company by 2025. 
The move comes as COVID-19 has accelerated the uptake of e-commerce, while traditional bricks-and-mortar grocery stores, including Woolworths and Coles, have battled paddock buying and rationed inventory during the pandemic. Marley Spoon, Australia's second biggest player in the $500 million meal kit delivery market, says the trend is here to stay, and Australia is part of its plan to expand across three continents. Rather than see Marley Spoon as a threat, Woolworths has joined forces with the food delivery service, striking a five-year strategic partnership in 2019. The tie-up, the first example of a leading Australian supermarket partnering with a meal kit delivery service, involved a marketing alliance and Woolworths taking an equity stake in Marley Spoon. In the past year, Marley Spoon has delivered 45 million meals across Australia, Europe and the US, and the company is looking to grow by about 30% this year, as it steams ahead with expanding it. And over 40% of financial advisors are considering leaving the profession due to stress, and another 17% are unsure if they stay, according to a report. The Australian Financial Advisors Wellbeing Report 2021 by the ELAB and Deakin University found that in terms of wellbeing, financial advisors scored far worse on the majority of the survey's measures than other stressful and demanding occupations. The report said advisors scored the worst in worst mental health, it's also included comparison to the average Australian, worst well-being, lowest levels of flow, a high performance state where you're absorbed in your work, highest stress levels, highest feeling of overload, highest impact of stress on them in terms of considering leaving the profession, impact on their medical health, negative impact on on sleep quality, chance of being overweight, risk of heart disease, lowest rates of incorporating innovation into their work, Lowest in psychological capital, a psychological construct made up of resilience, hope, optimism and confidence. Lowest in adaptive performance, the ability to respond and adapt to change. And second lowest levels of work-life balance. School principals were the only group with lower scores. And a union survey has found that about four out of five horticultural workers have been underpaid, with some earning as little as $9 a day. The joint study by Unions New South Wales and Victoria's Migrant Workers Centre found 78% of 1,300 horticultural workers reported being underpaid at some point, with 80% underpaid piece rates and 61% hourly rates. Unions will seek to use the study to bolster their case to change the horticultural award and supplement decades-old piece rates with a guaranteed minimum rate of $24.80 an hour. However, farmers have said they will have no capacity to pass on the extra costs and argue the union's issues go to enforcement, not the award. According to the survey, about 15% are paid between 0 and $7 an hour, 16% earned $16 to $19, and only 11% were paid $20 to $23. In some instances, workers said they earned less than $1 an hour. The lowest daily wages were reported in the grape and zucchini farms, where workers earned an average of $9 a day, and blueberry farms, where workers earned $10 a day. Unions New South Wales Secretary Mark Morey said farmers have made fantasy submissions to the Fair Work Commission, claiming that the peace rate system allows workers to earn above the minimum wage. He said the workers were treated like pawns, as about 25% said they have had shifts as short as one hour a day. And beleaguered analytics software outfit Newix has lost both its chief executive officer and chief financial officer, with CEO Rod Vaudry retiring and CFO Stephen Doyle terminated by mutual agreement after the tech company issued its third earnings downgrade since February. The departures from Newix cap a stunning fall from what was the biggest IPO of 2020. The company's board, which is facing ongoing pressure over governance and transparency issues, said in a statement that Mr Vaudry will continue in his role while an international search is conducted for a new CEO. The announcement followed a board meeting on Thursday evening. According to Newix executives, Mr Doyle has not been seen in his office since Newix's, in Newix's headquarters in Sydney for the last fortnight, including May the 31st, when the company announced its second earnings downgrade in six weeks. It's not known whether Mr Doyle was working remotely from Brisbane, where he has a house, or taking leave. 
Mr Doyle's departure and CEO Rod Vaudry's resignation come after a 78% drop in the share price since January, which has cost shareholders $2.9 billion. And Atlassian has signed on to a new deed of equity created by its charitable foundation, which is hoping other companies will also sign, to make it legally enforceable to make good on public pledges of donations. The Australian tech giant co-founded the Pledge 1% movement in 2040, with the idea being that participating companies agree to donate 1% of their equity, profits, time and or products to non-government organisations. Until now, such pledges were not legally enforceable in Australia, but this new deed of equity changes this, and if implemented, gives such promises greater weight. Atlassian Foundation head Mark Reading worked together with his former employer at PwC, Herbert Smith, Freehills and Australian Philanthropic Services to help work out what legal instrument would work best for pledge one percenters and also to check that formalising this corporate giving would not inadvertently trigger additional tax obligations. Typically, charitable gifts are tax deductible. Under the deed, startups and companies must pick what charity they want to donate their pledges to. The need to donate the gift is triggered by any major liquidity events, like an initial public offering. That happens within 10 years of signing the deed. Atlassian Foundation head Mark Reading described the Pledge 1% movement as a simple framework for baking social impact into the DNA of an organisation. And the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and National Australia Bank are again under scrutiny for their compliance into anti-money laundering laws after an investigation into one of their partners is set to result in sanctions being imposed in Papua New Guinea. BSP Financial Group, which listed on the ASX last month and trades as the Bank of South Pacific, faces possible fines or regulatory action in PNG for breaches of the country's anti-money laundering laws. Under Australian law, any sanctions handed out to BSP would be problematic for CBA and NAB, which are required to undertake regular due diligence assessments on their corresponding banks to ensure they're not facilitating money laundering. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Joe Asquith, CEO of the Royal College of Healthcare, the country's leading training provider for aged care, early childhood, etc. Two of the country's most booming sectors where jobs are in demand and they desperately need quality workers, particularly in the face of the outcome of the Aged Care Royal Commission. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.